Hey, Anchor Community, Pastor Brian here, and I'm excited to be continuing our teaching series, Intimate Sex, Singleness, and the Art of Relating. And today, there's no really easy on-ramp onto this conversation. We are talking about sex, the conversation that is awkward and incredibly important all at the same time. Everywhere we go, whether it's politics or our news feed or the checkout line at our grocery store, we're encountered with something that triggers the idea of sex and meanwhile, you know, it's like we don't know how to have the conversation. So externally, it's coming at us. Internally, we're feeling it, but we're not equipped or we don't know how or it's too awkward to have the conversation. I remember years ago when I was in elementary school, uh, one of the few times that the radio and the car moved from NPR to Cube 93 FM, uh, you know, we were listening. It was my choice. Somehow I got my choice. And all of a sudden, Salt and Peppa's Let's Talk About Sex came on. And quickly, my dad changed the radio station back to NPR. The, that was too, <laughs> was not something we were going to be listening to in the car. But that almost sufficed in a way as our sex talk. Uh, and I, I think even the concept of having the sex talk is just like this, okay, let's awkwardly have this conversation with somebody that is approaching puberty so we can be done with the conversation and not have to have the conversation again. Meanwhile, the people that are the objects of the conversation, because that's usually how it ends up working, continue to wrestle with questions and wonder and the talk is done. And so we don't re-engage with it. So we farm out the conversation to public school education and movies and conversations with friends. Well, we have to step into it because scripture is not bashful about having this conversation. And uh, so we're going to step into this conversation by looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 9. It's important to know, we mentioned this last week, that the situation in Corinth was not unlike our current situation, where people are coming into the church from backgrounds of just confusion with regards to sexualities and bodies and, and what it looks like, you know, to, to, to pursue pleasure without regard to wholeness. And all of a sudden, Jesus transforms their life through the ministry of Paul. And they're trying to sort what it looks like to follow Jesus when this past has been how they've understood how to do life. Paul's speaking to that, and he's really speaking to it very, very um, specifically, very pointedly in chapter 7, verses 1 and 9. So you can turn to it, and the first point we learn from as we, we're going to be going through these nine verses, kind of verse by verse, the first point we learn from Paul is that sexuality does not equal identity from the perspective of a Jesus follower. Now, culturally, that may describe something about how culturally people understand identity, that sexuality equals identity, but from the perspective of a Jesus follower, we look at it differently. Paul says this in verses one and two of chapter seven, and then also verses six and seven. We're looking at both of these little sections here. He says, now for the matters you wrote about, so the Corinthians are writing to Paul, they're asking him questions, and Paul is responding. He says, in the matters you wrote about, it is good for men not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's their question. Like, is it? You know, what's going on? And then he responds, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. And then going to six and seven, Paul says, I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish all of you were as I am. But each of you has his own gift from God, 
One has this gift, another has that. What is Paul doing? He's, he's, the Corinthians have this question about, okay, what does it look like now to follow Jesus? Now that spiritual matters are the most important, you know, should we not have, you know, what, does it matter what we do in our bodies or, or, you know, should we, should we not get married? Paul, you're not married. And, and what is Paul doing? He's, he's making this argument. It's like, no, you know, like, uh, Marriage is great, uh, and because the struggle, that sexual struggles are like something we feel, you know, feel free to go about marriage. But then in verses six and seven, he says that, hey, I'm actually like would prefer if more of you were able to live a life or at least a long period of time of singleness. So what he's doing is he's relativizing our sexuality as as subsidiary, as as secondary to understanding our identity. He's saying identity, our identity primarily is connected to Jesus and the kingdom of God. And sexuality is like is out there, even though it's an important part of how we understand ourselves, it affects us on many levels. It is not a primary way of understanding our identity. Paul says this uh, this verse many times uh, in Galatians, well, twice in Galatians, once in Galatians to the Galatian church and once to the church in Colossae. He says, you know, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for all of you are one in Christ. So Paul's definition of identity, if you want to boil down our identity, it is not sexuality, but it is who we are in Jesus. This is essential for Jesus' followers to understand in a world that would say everything but that. This means two things. It means, what? one, the truest part of you is not your relationship status. You know, and, and sometimes the church plays into this by focusing on romance and dating. And even a talk like this can be confusing for a person that is single, thinking that, okay, is something missing from me? No, the truest part of you is not your relationship status. From the Pauline, from the scriptural perspective, you, you are not a half person waiting for another half person to become a whole person. But in Christ, you already are a whole person. And, and, and if, if marriage is to happen, then it's ideally two whole people coming together to more fully reflect in their diverse personality uh, and, 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 and gender the more the image of who Jesus is and the Trinity and, and as, they, as two whole people come together. You are not waiting for someone to complete you because sexuality is not your identity. And then second... You know, just a proper understanding of the kingdom of God reorients worldly values. A proper understanding of the kingdom, it reorients worldly values. If the world is moving in this direction as it's like, okay, we're focused. We got blinders on. We're focused there. We're not looking here. If the world is moving towards whatever is sexuality, achievement, more and more financial resources, the kingdom of God, what it does is it shifts it. And says, okay, we have, we have re, we relativize our, our worldly values in light of the kingdom. This is what it means to follow, to get behind Jesus, that he gets to be the one that sets the tone and describes uh, his way. And we follow him. Paul is calling us to reevaluate their values in light of the kingdom of God. This idea, 
you know, that, that sexuality equals identity is, is, is really, it comes actually from Freudian psychology, which, you know, Freud himself, many, much of his, his contributions to psychology have been rejected as kind of outlandish theories, just as a side note. But among his theories was that the base part of who we are is that we are sexual beings and that every action, uh, is really at its root, some connected to a longing for sex. Paul says that's not true. Paul says that sexuality is a part of who we are. It's a major part of who we are. It affects us on lots of levels. But if you boil us down, we are objects of God's love. And we are really irreducible. We can't reduce ourselves down to just sexuality without reducing our personhood. It's interesting to note though, I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it's important to critique culture from a landscape, from a perspective of a Christian and to understand what does it look like to, to follow in the way of Jesus with regards to our sexuality, with regards to understanding our identity. It's incredibly important, but we also have to look internally at the church, how the church has been complicit in the same thing that the culture has been in making sexuality equal identity. You know, there is a term, maybe you've heard of it, um, called purity culture, and there are articles being written about it all over. Uh, and, you know, purity culture refers to a period in the 90s and the 2000s where there was this hyper focus on sexual sin and, and avoiding sexual sin. Here's the thing is that we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I'm going to speak to um, purity culture and its problems, but we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Purity is something scripture speaks to as a value. In fact, Jesus in the Beatitudes says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But purity, from the biblical perspective, it means an undivided heart or an undivided attention. But purity culture, what happened was there's this hyper fixation on sexual sin and almost to the exclusion of like all the other sins didn't really matter. And it almost what it did was the messaging was, is that because there's this hyperfixation of on sexual sin, if, if you messed up, you were completely, you, you felt so filled with shame. And then also correspondingly, if you succeeded, you felt like you were somehow victorious and righteous and without regard to all these other areas of your life. It almost did the same thing culture does by focusing on identity as sexuality in kind of a subtle, implicit way. A couple expressions of this. I remember when I was a new follower of Jesus walking into an accountability group. I didn't even really know what accountability group was, <laughs> but I knew I wanted to follow Jesus closely. And so some friends invited me to it. And I saw a calendar on uh, the wall and there was these X marks on each of the dates. And I said, what are those X, what are those X's on the dates? And um, uh, they said, well, those are the days we've uh, been, uh, you know, uh, with, we've gone without experiencing sexual temptation. And I, it, I two things happened to me. Uh, you know, I said, I was kind of like, wow, okay. I love the intentionality and the discipline you guys are showing. But then the question that kind of stuck with me was like, well, what about all the other things that we should be holding each other accountable for? Why are we so fixated on this one thing? I remember a conversation I had with a friend who had been a following Jesus longer than me again in college. 
And he looked at a woman as we were driving by. He says, Brian, look how promiscuous she looks. He didn't say promiscuous. Here's this guy that's a follower of Jesus. He's been following Jesus longer than me. And he, he's, he's objectifying this woman in light of how she's dressing. I mean, it's almost like he's, it's like, what I realized was that he is experiencing something that he didn't like and he was projecting his disdain on her. Jesus says, if you have a problem, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's in your eye, it's in your hand. This is the same thing that's happening in the world where it's the identity equals sexuality, but in a subtle, implicit way happening within the community that's centered around Jesus. Um, it's important to note that this isn't the way of Jesus. Like when Jesus interacts with a woman caught in adultery, uh, the, these, these religious leaders are going to stone her and they're asking questions to Jesus. And what are they doing? They're seeing her in light of this, of this particular sin that we don't really know much more about. Where's the guy? Text takes two to tango. The guy's missing. So all of a sudden this religious um, body of leaders is externalizing their shame and projecting it on her. And what does Jesus do? Does he, say, does he see her in light of that sin? No. He sees her in her full personhood. In fact, he protects her by becoming more vulnerable, sinks low to the ground, starts writing, starts to become the object of the religious leader's attention. So to take the focus off her, asks a question, he who is without sin, throw the first stone. So what he does is he takes the projection of sin on the woman, brings it back into the religious leader's. The stones drop and Jesus says, go and I don't condemn you. He says, I don't condemn you. And then he says, go and leave your life of sin. So there's this respecting and honoring of personhood while acknowledging the reality of sexual brokenness, but not seeing it as the sole descriptor of who the person is. This, is, this attitude and approach is so vital for us to have a Pauline understanding that there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. Sexuality does not equal identity. And to see sexual sin is not the sole descriptor of a person's personhood. And to not externalize it, not to take the shame we feel and place it on another person so we don't have to deal with the problems and tension of our own brokenness. It goes on, though, this idea that Paul's threading out through this chapter and to talk about not just sexuality doesn't equal identity, but he also apprises and, and understands what we're calling the significance of sex. And Paul is admittedly walking this tightrope where he's acknowledging that sex plays a pretty crucial role in our like understanding of human relationships and our understanding of ourself, but it is certainly not identity. But so he's, he's playing this kind of this balancing role where he's trying to help the Corinthians understand like the heart of God with regards to their createdness and sexuality. So it moves from sexuality doesn't equal identity to sec the significance of sex. In verses, uh, in verse four of chapter seven, Paul says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. And in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. What Paul does is here, Paul removes sex from the area of identity, but finds a way to give a far higher value to it, um, sex than the world ever would give it. 
I mean, think about this. Paul is saying that like your body, when you step into a marriage relationship, because Paul is specifically speaking about husband and wife here, when you step into a marriage relationship, there's this beautiful mutualism that happens. That that, that there's this, this, I'm coming to you and what, what I have is yours and what is yours is mine. So there isn't a dominating and dominated relationship, but there is, there is this beautiful mutualism. This is further reflected in Ephesians chapter 5 where Paul says at the beginning of this meditation on marriage, you go submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then when later on, this theme of submission is expressed in different ways between a husband and wife of mutual submission based upon the other's needs and, and, and what, they're, what, they're, what they really, what their heart longs for. We don't have time to go into that today, but it's really kind of this corollary passage to what Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 of this mutualism. Anthony Thistleton, this uh, Bible scholar um, who's written extensively in 1 Corinthians, says, in the ancient world, sexual intimacy was regarded either, in some cases, as a duty for the sake of procreation, or in other cases, as a pleasurable experience for men that women provided. Paul appears to be the first writer to suggest that such pleasure could be mutual. When you think about this, because what Paul is describing is, is the one becoming flesh. We'll talk more about that in a second. What Paul's describing here is this really this something that starts to image the Trinity, where these two individuals come and share in something incredibly intimate, inc- incredibly close, and the other is not just the others, and the other is just not the others, but they are each other's. Just similar as the Father and the Son and the Spirit are both distinct persons, but together one God this intimate act of sexual love between a husband and a wife reflects in some way and images the nature of the Trinity. This is kind of behind what I see Paul pointing to here. And it's imaged, the, I, the Trinity is imaged out, um, elsewhere outside of this kind of intimate expression of, of, of sexual sex between a husband and a wife. You could say the church working together with many people sharing in one project reflects the Trinity. There's lots of different expressions. So it's not limited just to sex, but sex is this beautiful picture of it. The significance of sex. So it's this thread that Paul is, is weaving between, yes, sexuality does not define who you are. You can be a single person. Note Jesus, note Paul, and be whole and healthy and not diminished in your personhood because you're not expressing your sexuality. You can be a whole and healthy person. Your sexuality is not defined. Um, your identity, it's incredibly important. But for those that are living in a covenant relationship, the expression of sex is incredibly significant and beautiful. In fact, you could say that it is like the barometer on, in, in, one, in some ways on the health of your marriage. And so the, uh, the, that you can tell, you know, and, and there's, it's more complicated than this. So I do not want to simplify it. But in many ways, the health of your marriage is evidenced in how willing you, willing you are to be physically intimate with your partner. 
because the reason is, is if I'm, if I'm, if I'm willing to be physically intimate with my partner, that means I feel safe to come close enough to be seen in a way that only he or she sees me. This is kind of what Paul is describing. It's incredibly significant. And it's part of how God has wired us. It's part of how God has created us. It's part of the goodness of creation that, that God has planned and developed and part of in who we are as human beings. And it's something that is significant. Which brings us to this next thread, um, this next point of what we're just calling it. Like, what does healthy sex look like? We've seen that it's significant. We've seen that it doesn't define us, but it is significant between a husband and a wife. So what does healthy sex look like for those that are in covenant relationship? And Paul um, says in verses in verses 3... Um, um, on, he says, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to the husband. And the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, as we read earlier, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. And then in verse 5, he says, do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, then come together so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Okay, um, there's so much to note here, but Paul sees that that the expression of physical intimacy as elemental to the marriage. We talked about that. He he doesn't want it to be to be diminished within a marriage. Um, and now he says, you know, if you need to take a break for prayer, then you can take a break. But you would, we would know that, like, like being in a marriage, sometimes there's seasons, whether it's after pregnancy or for some other physical reason, where they're just, you just need to, out of honoring the other, take a break from the physical intimacy and, and, and lessen your expectations out of love and honor for the other, out of actually an expression of intimacy. But Paul is seeing that as, as the goal is for that to not be normative throughout the life of a marriage relationship. Throughout the life of a marriage relationship, the goal is, again, for, for a couple to be pursuing each other emotionally and pursuing each other re- with relational intimacy as our, really our primary need so that there's a willingness and a safety to, to step closer together in physical intimacy. This is how it always works. Emotional intimacy is the foundation for physical intimacy. And Paul's, Paul's in verse nine, he says, but they cannot, if he's, he's talking about young single people or engaged people. If they cannot control themselves, they should marry for it is better to marry than burn with passion. So what Paul, in verses three to five, Paul is talking about the aspiration of marriage is that it should be, sex should be, should be increasingly normative when possible. And then in verse 9, he says, sex belongs in marriage. These are these two threads that, that it's important to see together is that, is that it, is, it is something to be aspired to in marriage and it's something that belongs only in marriage. Here, here's, here's one reason why, and you're not going to hear this, right, from, <laughs> from any other place really outside of the church. Uh, you know, here's why it belongs in marriage. It is being physically intimate with another person is the most vulnerable act that that exists in human relationships. Um, and so because it's the most vulnerable act, it requires the protection of a covenant. 
right in the beginning of, of Genesis, it says Adam and Eve, they became one flesh. They joined together. And when I'm sitting down with couples that we're doing pre-marriage work with, um, we, we, we talk about the aspects of oneness and like oneness is, is certainly involves physical intimacy, involves sex, but it involves much more it involves, you know, becoming one in our geography. We're sharing the same address, becoming one financially. We're sharing the same bank account or financial resources, becoming one in name. We're sharing a name in one way or another. We're, we're becoming one legally. We're signing a document that is signifying, signifying our pledge towards each other. We're becoming one, you know, emotionally the, the the things that affect one person now affect the other person because we share that level of relational intimacy and so what happens is when you have all of these aspects of oneness geographical oneness financial oneness emotional oneness legal oneness then you have a protection for physical oneness you have there's enough foundation and protection for physical oneness one of the metaphors for marriage in the Song of Songs, this poem that um, young Jewish men were not allowed to read until, until a certain age because it was so intimate, uh, is that sexual intimacy or the marriage in marriage is like a walled garden. It's like this walled garden protecting the growth of the garden from, from invaders and, 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 and shame. And, and, and so that's, there's this idea of like, because, because, because it, it, sex needs this protection. It should, you should wait until the protection exists to engage in the intim, into the intimacy. It's, um, you know, uh, it's interesting that like this is not um, something that uh, is one demonstrated or talked about, uh, you know, outside really of the church. Um, but the, the stats are in, and there's this groundbreaking study um, called the Case for Marriage that describes when you look at married couples and their sex life versus people that are just single and and having sex with with certain people at certain times or or maybe just cohabitating not married the um, physical intimacy, the emotional satisfaction with the sex life for married couples is consistently higher. You can look it up. The study was done by Linda Jane Waite and Maggie Gallagher. And it was a, it's not a Christian study. It's not some like trying to like a bias filled study. It was a land breaking or groundbreaking study, just looking at data. Um, and it's interesting, uh, this writer, British atheist, Alain de Baton, um, talks about in his book, Religion for Atheists. He says this, only, religious, um, only religions see sex as something potentially dangerous and needing to be guarded against. Perhaps only after killing many hours on online at youporn.com can we appreciate that on this one point, Christianity has got it right. Sex and sexual images can overwhelm our higher rational faculties with depressing ease. Christians are often mocked for being prudish, but they wouldn't judge sex to be quite so bad if they didn't also understand that it could be quite wonderful. Baton, not a Christian at all, is recognizing the Christian virtue and understanding of sexuality as actually a glimpse of true wholeness. He's saying the one thing they've got right is their attitudes towards sexuality. No, this is not something that we see out there. 
But the studies are in that uh, that physical intimacy happens best in a marriage relationship because both parties feel protected by the other aspects of oneness. That's why Paul says, okay, okay, if you if you're burning with passion, then get married. To put yourself into a place where the covenant can protect the intimacy and fan the flames of that. And he sees it something to aspire towards. We've we've scratched the surface on this conversation, and like this is not a sex, uh, it's a sex talk, you could say, but it needs to become a sex conversation with people that you're in close conversation with and close relationship with, husbands and wives, people that are, are journeying together. We need to find a way to not make sexual brokenness or sexuality the sole object of our attention like we've done certain times in the church, but also be able to talk about it and engage with it. I know um, that many, many of us come in with kind of shame triggers, even with the term. Some of us are victims, and we've been harmed. And as a pastor, my heart grieves knowing that some of us watching that have experienced trauma that you're continuing to work through at the hands of another person. And I'm grieved that you have experienced that. Some of us have been more perpetrators where we've been on the aggressor end of it and we're trying to work through shame or repent. We're trying to figure out what it looks like to heal ourselves and think about a future. And I'm proud for you asking those questions. Some of us have been really, you could say, the victims of a kind of a toxic purity culture where we can't disconnect our mess-ups from our identity. Wherever you're at, if you come to this totally healthy, kind of just trying to learn wherever you're at. I would want you to know this, that you can't do anything to get Jesus, to, um, not, to not have Jesus be crazy about you. You, you, you can't shake him. His, his love is aimed at you. His affection is pointed your way. And he desires for you to experience the wholeness and healing that he invites all of us to. That on the cross, he became uh, the one who took the full weight of all of our shame. He became a victim. He became a sacrifice, giving himself for us so that we might know how much he loves us. And so that we might walk in increasing victory and freedom. And even when we misstep or mistake, know that he's not running from us, but running towards us.